This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Good, Kevin. How are you? Doing very well. And today on the podcast, we will talk about the battle over restricted funds in the 2020 budget, and we'll explain how the feds just squashed salt cap workarounds. That may not be the end of the story, though, and we'll tell you what we're looking forward to in the weeks ahead. So, Michael, first of all, let's get into the governor and the General Assembly remaining at odds over fiscal year 2020 restricted funding. This is an ongoing budget impasse between the governor and the General Assembly, and it seemed now to reach a boiling point. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Um, this is this is getting a lot of attention and ink lately. I mean, ordinarily, the state budget is basically done and put to bed in the month of April. Right. Um, I mean, we have I mean, we'll talk a little bit about this process wise, but Maryland is a little unusual in many respects and unique in some respects that we have this executive budget process. So the budget bill itself, the, the one document that spends the money for one fiscal year, it becomes law the instant the legislature passes it. It doesn't go for signing. There's no line item veto. The governor doesn't get a bite at the apple at the end of the process. Right. Which on on that you know if that's all you hear it sounds like gee the governor's like left out of this process right, he has no power but actually it's the reverse the reason the governor doesn't get in on the back end of the process is in Maryland the budget process all starts with the governor the legislature can't add or move money in the budget and so it like nothing can get in there without the governor putting it there that's how things are written on paper and you know word for word uh, what we're finding is is we're testing the envelope on the limits of some of these different definitions and and processes. So that's where we are. And here we are, you know, well into the month of June. Our fiscal year starts July 1. And we still have a number of state-funded programs with some pretty meaningful looming uncertainty. Right. And as you mentioned, the governor is the only one that could add funds to the budget. The General Assembly may only reduce or restrict funding. Fun fact, though, that the current system was not always in place in Maryland. Prior to 1916, Maryland's budget process was controlled by the legislature. Even, even I wasn't here for that. That's I mean, right. Even I Bill mean, Ratchford wasn't woo. here for that. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so essentially what's going on here, Michael, is that the General Assembly has now fenced off about $180 million in the fiscal 2020 budget that can only be spent on certain projects or if specified conditions are met. The governor has said he's not decided whether or not to accept the conditions to release these funds. And what we're exactly talking about here, Michael, we have some money for school construction. We have money for the Baltimore City Police Department, money for testing rape kits, money for the symphony orchestra, etc. Yeah. And we have seen this hashtag showing up on social media and it's free the funds. Right. So the, there's a few things to unpack here that I think are, are worth taking a couple minutes to sort out. And, and first of all, in talking about the respective roles of the governor in Maryland and the General Assembly in Maryland, it's the governor who can put things into the budget and only the governor can do that. Right. The, the legislature, you said they can reduce things, they can take things out of the budget, and then they can restrict 
funding. And that's what we're All talking right, so about. That's, that's the word, and that's a, that is a term of art. Um, for years and years, we have seen uh, the legislature use the term of restrict funding in a fairly narrowly defined way. I mean, for years and years, we've seen things in the budget like uh, this department doesn't get all of its funds until they release a certain report. Right. So, and we still see that yeah, today. Yeah, right? All the time. Mm-hmm. So, so dozens of times in each year's budget plan, there will be some rider language or things like that, that are either in the budget bill or in a special report from the two budget committee chairs. Right. And a lot of times things will say, okay, you know, this agency, we've been looking for you to follow up on this one audit item and we really mean it. Yeah, won't, so, you won't answer us. Yeah, so, so now we're really going to so, hold your feet yeah, to the So fire. a way to do that. And this is, I mean, this is a deliberate checks and balances within the Maryland Constitution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The legislature can say, okay, you get funding for your program. We're not going to necessarily cut it, but we will restrict it either until something happens or you might do something like we restrict this program to only be used for these two things on the list, not the other four things you wanted to use it for. Right. And the legislature is within their rights, I think unambiguously, to do that sort of thing. So for for a long time, the idea of the legislature putting restrictions or limits or timetables or, you know, not until something else is accomplished, that kind of stuff is relatively common. Um, it's not really necessarily a partisan thing. We've seen this with administrations that are in the same party as the legislative leadership and not. Mm-hmm. So that is an ordinary interplay between the legislature and the executive branch. And it's sort of built into the constitution that way. So the ability to restrict funds is not new. The general concept is not controversial, but what we've got before us is a broader notion of what restricting could look like and feel like. Exactly. And basically I think the legislator's point of view is that, Hey, we don't have any input on what actually gets put into the budget. And this is the only way by restricting funds or earmarking funds to certain purposes that we can have an impact and that we can make sure that we get some of our priorities included in the in the budget. However, the governor does have power here because even though they can restrict those funds, the governor ultimately has to agree to release them. And that's the point we're at today. Right. And that's that's the impasse. So so effectively what the legislature has attempted to do, and this is not a new thing. We've, we, we actually saw this several years ago in the state budget with this governor and, and many of the same legislative leaders. We saw a similar approach of a variety of funds that were for particular purposes in the governor's budget as proposed. And effectively, the legislature said, we want to fund various things. But in order to do that, we'll basically f- put a fence, you know, we call it fencing off. That's sort of the become the Annapolis term of art for this. Mm-hmm. But the legislature says we'll sort of put a fence around some of this money that might have otherwise just basically fallen to the bottom line in the state budget. And it would go, we have a, that we call it a sweeper process right, at the end right. of the year, money that's sort of left over gets swept and put into a rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. And that's a, I mean, we're a triple A state. The, the bond rating agencies like the way we run our business fiscally when they try and assess whether we're a good credit risk for people to go get bonds from places like Maryland versus Illinois. They say Maryland runs their 
place well and Illinois eh, less so. And so they give us a good rating. They give Illinois a lousy rating and you got to pay. Illinois has to pay their bondholders a much higher interest rate than Maryland does. So stuff matters in a lot of ways. Sure. But having a process like a sweeper that takes all this money at the bottom of the budget each year and puts it into a rainy day fund is pretty generally recognized fiscally responsible things thing to do and it's sort of saying okay well you know if we've got money left over from this year's budget or we didn't spend what was allocated and so forth set it aside and we might need it someday sure, that makes sense yeah. now the general assembly's perspective obviously they want to have some input on the budget process the governor's office of course has a different take on this issue and michael that's because this money this 180 million dollars didn't come from nowhere right they had to cut or move money from the governor's budget in order to fence off these funds elsewhere. Right. So you have to, there has to start with something. And so that's what ultimately gets tricky here is the legislature can identify money that absent them doing something tricky in the budget would go to a particular purpose or a particular line item. And by using this sort of fencing process, they can say, well, you know, that money that otherwise might have just become part of the rainy day fund, or it might have gone to the pension system or something else. Instead of using it for that purpose, the governor may only use it for this other purpose. So this is the fencing off. The language reads more or less like that. It says, the governor put this money in the budget. We have now said it can only be used for this different purpose, and it'll be up to the governor whether to spend it for that purpose. To some degree, this is, I think it's fair to say to some degree, this is the legislature trying to have a little bit of their cake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Absolutely, not quite have sure. their cake and eat it too, but it's a little bit like that. The legislature definitely can't say we're taking $10 million from the pension and we're going to add it to a new thing in the budget and spend it there. And it's done. Right. They can't do that. And nobody argues that they can. But here, what they're effectively saying is the governor said this money was available. He put it in this, this budget to be spent. And now we've put a fence around it and said, if he wants to spend the money that he said is available, it can only be used on this particular thing. That is a broad interpretation of the concept of restricting funds. Right. And, you know, some of the areas that have been cut or moved, you mentioned the rainy day fund, the pension system, the boost program, which is highly controversial. That That's basically a school choice program for kids that are in underperforming schools. It gives them another option. Uh, you know, program open space funding, et cetera, et cetera. But it adds up to about $180 million. And those advocating for the budget to release these funds say it's a very small portion of the overall budget. But the yeah, governor's, right? The yeah. governor's office, though, points out that, hey, the amount of money you're talking about here is about 26% of the projected $961 million structural deficit that we're looking at in 2021. So we really need to take time to review these issues and make sure that all of our ducks are in a row because we don't want to put ourselves in you know worse shape than we potentially could be already. Right. So, so we've, got, we've got yet another sort of he said, he said story here. And basically, I think both of these number stories are true. I mean, I think that's, I think that's probably, I mean, on the face they are. I mean, first of all, it is roughly a $20 billion general fund budget, give or take. So in in grand terms, we're talking about a number a little bit less than 200 million. So you're talking about less than 1% of the budget. So, so, you know, we agree on 99 cents out of this dollar bill and we're haggling over some fraction of the last penny. That's true. True. We've decided we're going to fund the school funding formulas. We've decided we're going to fund the Medicaid 
Medicaid program. We're going to keep the number of employees. Um, we're going to, you know, we're going to give them the raise that they've negotiated. Uh, there's a variety of other you know, incremental decisions along the way. And we've decided we're going to take the governor's proposals in these 11 areas. And we've made these two changes, these two cuts, blah, blah, blah. And you pass the budget and that's all done. And that accounts for 99 point something percent of the budget. So, I mean, you're not out to lunch to say we're now, you know, we're haggling over relatively tiny details. I mean, that boost program is something like a $10 million oh, yeah, program. Not very much. Right. And, and, it's know, not big money. It else. It's not big money. But let, let's face it, that in particular has a political element. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a program that that Governor Hogan was a big fan of and has mixed support across the two parties. It's a weird combination of Republican and Democratic support. We could do an entire podcast episode or two or three talking about school choice programs and things like that. But this is nominally some public funding of scholarships to help people who are seeking non-public schools, going to a private school or a parochial school. And the General Assembly essentially put restrictions on that this year, and then they cut some of the funding. Right. So, So the governor said the money's available to do this program. And that's where the legislature said, well, if the money's available for that, then that means the money's also available for something else. Mm -hmm. And here's our list of things that we think you should have put in the budget or over time, they seem to be higher priorities than some of the things that you funded. I mean, the other stuff on the list, probably less political or partisan, but they, they all maybe share one facet, and that would be they're all kind of drop-in-the-bucket issues. Like the, the rainy day fund, we always keep 5% of the general fund budget sitting Standard. in the rainy day fund, and then we usually let it grow above that. So it sits around at like 6.5%, 7%, 8%, varies over over time. You know, the idea of that last, whatever, $30 million or $50 million or $9 million or whatever the number is, whether it gets to that bottom line figure, you still have $950 million lying in that account or some, you know, impressive sounding number. Right. Whether that number is, you know, a billion oh two or a billion oh six, it you still have a pretty impressive number to take to to standard and poor's and show them, hey, we're we're ready in case there's a problem with our bonds. Right. So it's right? not like you'd be <laughs> in really bad shape once you go up to New York and talk to the ratings agencies. Right. Right. right? And okay. and like the same thing goes for our, our pension system. We have an underfunding in the system that if you honestly run the numbers on the assets we've got in our pension plan and the contributions we expect to come in and what they're going to earn on them over time, it's not quite enough to pay for what we think the benefits are going to be. But it could be a lot worse like other states. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not we're not a, we're not a train wreck and we are on a multi-year plan to get up to you know a, a healthy level of funding. But we're not there at the moment. But that's another one where I've I've lost track of what the latest number is. But if we're 18 billion dollars short in that fund, this latest 20 million bucks, that still rounds off to 18 billion. Right. right? So this is this is an issue where. Yeah, it's a sensible thing to say let's let's do some targeting, but the way you tackle the 18 billion dollar problem is with a 20 year plan to adjust contribution rates over all employees all the time. It's not honestly it's not the sprinkles of, you know, a couple million here and an extra 50 or an extra 20 and that sort of thing. That's not how you get to 18 billion. Sure. And we also know we've talked a lot about the, you know, the structural problem that the state is going to face and I think that it's fair for the governor's office to say 
you know, when you when you say it the way you say it, that does make sense. But right. look one, at it from our yeah. angle. Well, one percent of the budget doesn't sound like a big deal, but let's talk about what two hundred million dollars is. Right. And I think so. This is also. I think it's a worthwhile way to look at the number. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've had this conversation. I mean, we, we did so back in the fall and through the legislative session. And I think what we keep saying about fiscal stuff, and like this isn't our invention. This is what every green eye shade in town agrees on mm-hmm. is that the FY 20 budget that they passed this year was relatively smooth. The governor's proposal was basically balanced and legislature didn't have to do very much. Right. But the, but in practice, we all know that there's a structural problem looming and it's in the hundreds and hundreds of millions as soon as next year and growing beyond. And that is just assuming that nothing goes wrong in the economy, assuming right. that the federal government doesn't shut down yeah, again. So, yeah, so we're going to whistle past the graveyard. We're not going to have any problems with the federal government. We're not going to have any regional you know, downturn because of that. We're not right. going to have any national level of downturn because of trade policies or uncertainty in the international economy or just because of the business cycle. Right. So none of those things are going to happen. It's going to be relatively good news on the revenue side and on the economic side. We still have a problem. It's still going to be there. Yeah, we still have a, I mean, what's our working number is in, in the $900 million range. In 2021, $960 million, give or take, something there. Right, so that so that the governor and you know Budget Secretary Brinkley and, and the top advisors in the executive branch are already thinking, you know, this, this October we got to sit down with our state agencies and tell them to draft up next year's budget. We may be telling them, hey, you know, come in flat or come in 2% below or, you know, give us options that are like tighten the belt one notch and then two notches. Right. I right. mean, that might be the environment we're in. We in county government, we know what that sometimes means for us. We'll see a budget reconciliation bill that suddenly it's like, wait, they're shifting these costs onto counties or the, the state's not going to do its full share for something that's been on their plate or in their budget for years and years. I and mean, we've seen, you know, we've, we've seen this movie before. Sure. It's certainly a worry. So, so if we're, if we're only a year out from fiscal austerity and they're looking at a problem of $900 million or thereabouts, then we really maybe shouldn't be spending that money. We should be putting it in the sock. And then that means the base is lower for next year. And it just, it keeps us from, you know, what's you know, the old the old saying, once you find that you're in a hole, rule number one is stop digging. Exactly. I think that's more or less what Secretary Brinkley and the governor are saying here is that the resolution here probably should be on the spending side and you know, if if you're if you're doing this like inventory management, one of those time honored principles, and it's one this administration is fond of, is last in, first out. And here we are. Uh, this is basically the textbook definition of last in. These are not silly programs necessarily, right? And one of the big ones, school <laughs> yeah. construction, right? We have right. already seen. You know, some counties, this does have a direct impact on and it's affecting them right now. Right. Right. Well, I mean, we, I mean, we, we know the governor was interested in school construction. And he I think put, that, yeah, yeah, that's one of his points, too, is right. that, hey, you guys, I gave you a big school construction proposal. You didn't want to do that. But right. now you fenced off this money and yeah. you want me to release it. So I think there are some politics there, too. Sure. But certainly we have seen some effects today of counties mm-hmm. who really could use, you know, that right. money and, and they're not getting it yet. Right. I mean, I'm mean, just just yesterday. Um, you know, Mako had a meeting with the Caroline County commissioners. And, you know, this is a, a small rural jurisdiction that they have a big school project in the pipeline. And they have raised their income tax. Yeah, basically 
actively have gone to the mat to be able to build this school. And I mean, that's that's the nature of that's that's how education drives policy. They know they need the school. It's it's more expensive than anything that they've built or envisioned before. But that's fine. They they're they're biting the bullet. They're ready to do it. And then. Suddenly they find that I think it's about $3 million of the funds for that project are actually in this add-on funding. So they're tied up. And so right now they find themselves in an awkward spot saying, well, you know, what do we do? We don't, I mean, Caroline County does not have any easy way to find $3 million under a couch cushion. That, you know, there's, there's different scales of jurisdictions, but they are one of the smallest and among the very poorest jurisdictions in the state. $3 million bucks is an enormous number in Caroline County. Of course. And I mean, as we said, they have done everything they can to, to maximize their revenues. Right, basically. And so now they're really reliant on this money. They've, they've already planned this project. So $3 million being tied up is a big deal to them. And, you know, the governor's office says they're reviewing these requests. They don't know yet, but we should have something maybe next week. I, I guess we don't know. There's really I not mean, a deadline, right? right? So, I mean, the obvious thing is we mentioned that we do a fiscal year that's July 1 through June 30th. And, you know, we're we're recording with less than two weeks left in the month of June. So in theory, you'd say this stuff would get tied up and sorted out and they'll decide whether to spend the money or not, you know, basically by July 1. Right. That seems like it makes sense. But honestly, it's, it's not as though if the governor showed up on the 1st of August or at the Mako conference in the middle of August and decided, you know what? I've decided I'm going to spend this money and here's what we're going to do. I mean, you'd still be able to, to go ahead with those school projects that were being funded with that extra funds. Right. You'd be able to, you know, you'd be able to have a new plan for the Baltimore symphony. I mean, these, these are the folks who are getting like all the oxygen in the rooms talking about symphony. We got, we got violin players coming to Annapolis playing yes. on the, on yes. the lawn and so forth. So, I mean, and they have their own issues, budgetary right. issues. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there, there's, there, there's sort of a separate and maybe intriguing, policy debate about public subsidies for for the arts and so forth that's sure. i don't know we'll we'll put a pin in that we'll get back to that i'll be that to the list. podcast extra right because <laughs> because yes. we're we're totally the the right people to yeah. talk about talk that about in that detail right sure, yeah sure, sure. okay why not <laughs> but so so we're I, I guess we're basically stuck. Okay. I mean, the, the governor has said we're still reviewing this stuff. So he, he hasn't planted a flag and said, no way, no how. Part of his argument has been about communication, mm -hmm. that it's not like in the first week of April, the, you know, that Secretary Brinkley was sitting with legislative leaders discussing the process of doing this fencing off right. where he might say, OK, you know, we'll play ball on A, Let's B negotiate. and D, but not you know, C and F. Like, I mean, in theory, this could have been a negotiation, whether whether it was expedience or headline grabbing or, you know, some shock effect or, you know, just, you know, things were down to the wire in the legislative process as they frequently are. I don't know. That's probably beyond our scope to, to you know, identify how this all came together. Right. But but where we sit is is a big unknown. It seems like you do this by July one, one way or the other. Uh, but the thing is, it's not like there's 
big chunks of operating money where you'd be hiring people. I mean, the last time we were in a dilemma like this, there was some operating money for schools that was on the table. Right. And if the governor didn't come up with the funding for that, the schools couldn't do anything with the money once the school year starts. If you don't have the staff, you, know, you don't you don't have the program. That was way more urgent. Right. And then you would say now, if, if that was the situation, you'd say, okay, you really need to do this by July 1. Yeah, you would think. Right. So I think it's a softer deadline here. July 1 is a functional and maybe psychological deadline that that's the first day of the fiscal year. And if we go into the new year without the money approved, then, you know, okay, process wise, is it different? I mean, maybe it's a little different, but I don't think it's inconceivable that you could actually get to work on those projects and you could go back. I mean, you know, you've got some untested rape kits and the funding for that. Could You could scrounge that together and maybe you don't do it on July 1, but you get to work on it in September or whatever. And I think that could happen. So if we don't see it by July 1, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Again, the governor's office is reviewing these requests. It says it should have some more information by next week. Certainly an issue that is not going away. There is increased pressure on the governor to make a decision. But we'll keep you updated as soon as we hear an update. And obviously, yep. this is one that's going to remain in the news. I think so. All right. We'll go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk about the federal government squashing some states' proposals to work around the salt caps that were instituted in 2017 with federal tax reform. We'll also talk about what we're looking forward to. All that after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, this week, or I guess last week, we got some news that the federal government, the IRS, has stepped in and squashed some of the proposed workarounds for the SALT cap. And Michael, remind <laughs> the listeners of what SALT is and why we're talking about this and why this is so important. Right. So uh, this is not restricting sodium in your diet and so forth. No, we're, we're talking about state and local taxes, the acronym being SALT, which is too easy to not use, I guess. Yes. And we've talked about this a lot. Yeah. Traces back to late 2017. Uh, the Congress and the administration at the federal level wanted to do a big tax cut. We saw this coming together sort of in slow motion, but they were weighing lots of different pieces and components and things that could give tax relief to different swaths of businesses and individuals and so forth. Huge and, bill. And yeah, yeah. So lo lots of stuff on the table. You know, one of the things that we were screaming and yelling about back in, at, back at that time was was municipal bonds. Mm -hmm. And would you still be able to to claim a deduction right. for for the interest you gain on municipal bonds? That basically stayed in. Congressman the, yeah, Rupersberger yeah, worked really yeah, hard. Totally. Yeah, led a led a big bipartisan coalition to keep that intact. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening were a number of things needed to be in that bill as pay-fors. Right. That's the term of art in Congress for 
you know, we want to have, we want to have the final fiscal effect, the score of a bill be at a certain level. And if you're going to be doing tax cuts, if you're dropping tax rates, that means revenues come down. That means the, the federal deficit goes up. And that means we have to float more bonds and sell them to somebody, usually international investors who will basically loan money to the United States to keep us afloat. So one of the big provisions in this bill was that salt cap, right? And that's right. a pay for. And what exactly did yeah. they do in 2017? So it, up until up through tax year 2017, before these recent reforms, people had the ability to basically say, all right, I'm, I'm paying state and local taxes, you know, either property taxes or income taxes to my state or my state and local governments. And because that money has been taxed, you really shouldn't count that as income that I have available to me for the federal government to tax it. And that's been the longstanding policy. Yeah. So you, so so you don't basically you, you try not to double tax the same income. So the way you affect that in the federal ta- income tax system is you deduct that from your income. You ignore that it was income received because it's been taxed by your state right. or by your local government. Right. So that's already been spoken for. You've paid that money in taxes. You shouldn't be considering that as part of your taxable income federally. That's how things worked for a long, long time. The feds needed some pay-fors to make their various tax cuts package affordable to the tune of enough votes, basically, in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. So that's what had to happen. One of the things they showed up with is let's put a cap, sort of really just an artificial dollar limit on the amount that anyone can claim as state and local taxes being deducted from their income. And, and they set that level at $10,000. Nice round number. Right. right. And this is a big deal for states that rely heavily on property and income tax because while you could deduct sales taxes, it's a lot harder to keep all those. Yeah, every those t- every time together. you go to the every time you go to Subway, you gotta gotta hold on to your thirty cents or whatever. I mean, right, right. So that's that's a little bit tedious, but everybody has paperwork on income taxes and on property taxes, and everybody knows the process for you file a property tax statement along with your federal return, and it shows here's what I paid. You probably have an escrow manager mm-hmm. and you know some you know, a mortgage servicer or whatever, and they'll say here's what you paid in in mortgage interest, and here's what you paid in your state and local taxes. Exactly. So in any event, short version is there are a fair number of places and Maryland conspicuously among them for multiple reasons, but the probably the not obvious, but it makes sense is we're an income tax reliant state. We, we, We deliberately decided years ago that using income as a basis for paying taxes rather than lots and lots of property or lots of sales tax was a more sensible tax policy for this state. So that was a conscious decision by Maryland to rely more on income taxes, but that meant Marylanders had more to deduct and and a higher share of Marylanders were deducting more than 10 grand in state and local taxes. Exactly. So it does definitely had a big impact on the state. Our attorney general has joined and signed on to a lawsuit that is trying to reverse that provision that is still ongoing. But some states, Michael, 
created some, let's say, creative workarounds right. that the IRS has now stepped in and said, no, 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 no. So we, we saw this we saw this wave a while ago, and this I mean, this really blew up. Basically, the, the whole tax reform package happened in the winter months in late 2017, and then everybody is literally like reading the tax reform bill into the spring of 2018 and finding all these cockeyed provisions buried in the, in the bowels of the bill. Yeah, I remember, <laughs> I think so. Some senators were saying, oh, we just got the bill. It's, you know, right. it's, it's up to the ceiling and now I got to go vote on right. it in 10 right. minutes. Right. So, I mean, whatever you think of that process, okay, the bill passes, it's become law and you try and sort out the pieces in that bill. I mean, there's lots of things in there that we're, we're still trying to deal with the components of. Maryland, like other states, we're rolling out the Opportunity Zones program. Right. That was right. another thing there. We're seeing that in the newspapers lately. Could be something we talk about again. But, yes. but on, on, on this issue with income taxes and cash state and local tax deductions, you had multiple states saying, is there a way that we can sort of protect our taxpayers here in New York or New Jersey or California or Maryland? And could we come up with some way to preserve their ability to continue to deduct that, you know, those payments. Probably, I guess the most popular and arguably the most clever was to create sort of a go-between between the taxpayer and the state and local governments. If you form some sort of a charitable entity that has charitable purposes, and then you have your state or your state and local government effectively reimburse a taxpayer for their contribution to that charity. Right. Is that a way you can do this? So basically, hey, uh, you owe $15,000 in income taxes, but here's the deal. Write a $15,000 check to this charity and that'll be a charitable contribution. And then we're going to give you a hundred cents on the dollar or 99 cents on the dollar or something like that as a tax credit. And basically we'll offset the cost of you doing that. And there wouldn't be a cap. And then the money from that charity, lo and behold, turns out to be the money we use to support the Medicaid program and funding the schools and the stuff that ordinarily would be supported through taxes. Mm-hmm. So it was a shell game from the beginning. And that way you could then write <laughs> off those charitable payments right. that you've essentially made to your state and local governments as a charitable deduction on your federal tax return. And there would be no cap. It would be cap free. So that, that was the theory right. is that is that if you can if you can give people a way to take the money that would have been a tax payment, which is now capped and make it into a charitable deduction, which is not capped, you'd be able to preserve people's ability to write their write the stuff off on their federal taxes. Very clever. Very clever. It's clever. And I think if we played the tapes of the Conduit Street podcast from back in, I don't know, January, February of 2018, I think the two of us said, no way the IRS is going to let California and New York and whomever get away with some sort of end, like pretty transparent end run. Not going like to happen. Right. So the system moves relatively slowly. Here we are in, in, you know, almost the summer of 2019. But lo and behold, the guidance from the IRS shows up. And they've basically said, uh, party's over. No, yeah, we're can't not. Do that. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> right. So basically, under the final regulations, the, the IRS has said any taxpayer making payments to an entity eligible to receive tax deductible contributions must reduce the federal charitable contribution deduction by the amount of any state or local tax credit that you've received from your state and local government uh, or expect to receive in return. So, so basically, the, the, they're you just, just saying you can't have it both. You ways. can't have it both ways. Right. right. I mean, the IRS is 
maybe steadfastly consistent or, I don't know, admirably consistent in basically saying what we believe is let's look at what this thing, what something amounts to exactly. rather than what it's titled on a piece of paper. Right. And if it if it's really income, it's really income. We'll treat it like income. In this case, if it's really taxes, it's taxes. Nice even, if, even if you call it a charity, it's still taxes. So I think the short version is this is federal policy that the states are already adjusting to and that taxpayers need to deal with. Um, there's not going to be sort of a silver bullet that just makes this problem go away to the extent that policymakers in some states were hanging their hat on. I mean, to, to Maryland's credit, we didn't go through with something like this. There were a few sheets of paper floating around in Maryland at one point that right. said, well, maybe we could come up with some backdoor scheme or whatever. And Maryland basically said, this is not going to work. That's not how we're going to build our budget. So anyway, the show's over. Um, it is what it is. But that doesn't necessarily mean this policy debate is totally over. Right, because in Congress, they are still talking about maybe restoring some of the popular deductions <laughs> right, that you used to be able to make on your federal income tax return. And Michael, the big issue is this bill essentially made it so now 90% of Americans take the standard deduction. So while you may be yeah. used to in the past taking off all these deductions, now it's just it's easier and it makes more sense financially just to take the standard deduction. So right. no longer are you writing off, let's say, your mortgage interest deduction. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a, a new paradigm in the way we think about income taxes. And if this is how it's going to be for a long time, mm -hmm. which we don't know, but if the next whole generation is going to pay taxes more or less under this scheme, then over time, people will stop thinking of tax deductions as part of the arithmetic of doing things like making charitable contributions. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. Sure. I, I hear these, you know, ads on the radio all the time, but you got an old car, you know, we're an, we're a nonprofit and we'll take that car and we'll get, you get a nice tax deduction for it. You get 500 bucks for your beater car. Right. And you know, we get to sell it and the, and the proceeds help people who are in need and so forth. People feel like that's a win win. Everybody's happy. Right. Well, if, if in practice you now are a standard deduction type of person, which it sounds like something like 92 out of 100 families or people are, right. then you're no longer really chasing, you know, you're no longer like keeping receipts for that $50 to this charity. And I struggled to check for a hundred bucks and then we bought the Girl Scout tickets and all these kind of things. You're not keeping that stuff anymore because you're not itemizing. So obviously if you are a charity, you're concerned at this point. Right. Right. And, and like also, I mean, just imagine the whole housing industry and there are lots of professionals who are themselves realtors and real estate agents, but also in the, in, you know, financing and banking and all the different things that go along with buying and selling homes, people feel like the ability to write off mortgage interest, I mean, politically speaking, that's kind of a third rail. There, there were, there was a time when that was thought about as one of the pay fors to directly either cap or remove the mortgage interest deduction. Right. And like the realtor community went bananas. And that was taken off and the table. Everybody in Congress was like, no, we're not doing that. Right. We're not getting rid of that. Right. But in effect, by, by, by having, 
uh, the new standard dux- deduction be so much more generous, uh, you know, $24,000 for a typical family ends up being more dollars than all those items. Even if you've got, you know, medical costs and your state and local taxes and your mortgage interest and you've got some, you know, oh, I'm paying on a student loan and you like all add all that stuff up together and it's only, well, it's 17 grand. So you're still better That's off. a long list. I'll still take the 24. Right. You get that 24 whether or not you gave the 100 bucks to the charity or whether or not you paid that mortgage interest. So you're really not writing that stuff off anymore. And so, Michael, as they're talking about maybe restoring some of these popular write-offs, I mean, if we think that the tax system is complicated now, I mean, you might as well just blow it up. Yeah. How do you do this? I mean, you know, we're we're reading literally this week, you know, news news out of Washington that that the committees that do tax policy are contemplating. You know, extenders and so forth. There were some of the provisions in this big tax reform that were due to sunset before the full 10 year scoring period. Right. Mostly because it would have ruined the it would have ruined the cost effects to have them count it's for all ten about years, the score. It's all right? About the so score. yeah, they're really big into scoring, yes. right? So yes. there's there's yes. a joke in there somewhere, but <laughs> um, so we're we're probably still going to have a debate about pieces here, and you would have to think that you know that community that didn't want to lose their mortgage interest deduction will it's a little more subtle, but they're still probably cheesed off that a lot of people just aren't taking it anymore and over time won't feel it. If the housing industry feels pinched by tax policy, they will be heard and a lot of people will be inclined to listen. So could you end up with a weird deal where will you itemize or will you take the standard? I'm taking the standard. Well, we have a few things you can itemize on top of that. We'll have a a special preferred list. I mean, how, how crazy could the tax form get if people get to take a standard deduction to skip the itemizing process and then still, well, now we have this item is on the preferred list. And then, you know, the all the well-to-do charities are going to show up and they'll knock on the door and say, we want we want on the preferred sure, list. Once too. you open that door. Right. And then, oh, what about all these people who have business deductions and, you know, all, all this sort of things? I mean, professional gamblers are going to want to hear you know, all this sort of stuff. I mean, like the list yeah, is sure. going to go on and on. Right. So. A lot more to come, obviously. They're talking about this stuff in Washington. If you thought this was over, it's not over yet. We'll keep you updated, but it, it's going to get very complicated very fast. Right. And and we're, we're learning more and more about this this year because we saw most people settle up their 2018 taxes in April, right. you know, filing deadline in the middle of April, right. or a lot of mostly big hitters, but people with very complicated tax people. returns. Um, can take an automatic extension and they get a few extra months. So we will see the back end of 2018 filings show up this fall. And some people have already had their reconciliation and have they've taken a look, you know, they go through a turbo tax, they talk to their preparer, and they have some sense of how this year looked different from the year before it. Mm-hmm. The back end are going to be the people with the complicated returns, the people who have the long list of itemized deductions, some of the people who are in the alternative minimum world who aren't anymore. Some of those people are going to be plenty happy. Some of those people are probably going to be pretty angry. And a lot of those people will pick up the phone and talk to somebody in D.C. about what they've seen. That could have an effect. Yeah, it does. Okay. So, Michael, I know there is something that you wanted to get into. I think you want to talk a little bit about some history here in Maryland and maybe uh, reflect a little bit. Yeah, just... 
just a, a little bit sort of a, a personal side. I've been doing policy work in Annapolis for a long time. My first legislative session in Annapolis was in 1992. And 92 turned out to be a really tumultuous year. The early 90s was its own recessionary period. And 90 and 91, we sort of fell off the cliff. And 92 was when sort of Maryland landed with a thud. Mm -hmm. So it was a really tough budget year and a lot of difficult, painful decisions needed to be made. Um, At the time, the Speaker of the House, Clay Mitchell, who passed away this week, he's going to be laid to rest on the Eastern Shore this Friday. Clay Mitchell was the Speaker of the House from, you know, from small town Maryland, a rural Democrat. He would be he would be a real moderate sort of blue dog Democrat in today's politics. He was not a member of the Ways and Means Committee where I was a professional staffer and I was I was the guy running around with a clipboard trying to keep together, okay, the House fiscal plan looks like all these different things and here's the aid formulas and here's all the tax issues and stuff like that. Um, I was dutifully with your, with your spreadsheets. I'm dutifully trying to be that guy and I'm I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've got, Sideways I've got, pieces of paper. yeah, I've, I've got, I've, yeah, that was me. That was me. Right. Everything but the green eye shade. So right. I, I was, I was, I was trying to keep up, I, you know, I'm running around trying to keep up with my boss's 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 boss. Right? I'm my first year in town and weird circumstances had me working on tax issues in a huge fiscal issue, fiscal right, year. Right. So anyhow, Clay Mitchell, um, in in my reckoning of that year was a central figure, maybe the central figure in everything coming together. That was a tough year. The legislature finished their 90-day session without a balanced budget. They had to trigger going into an extended session, which basically meant you can drop confetti on Monday night all you want, but no one's going home. Because one thing you need to do is <laughs> You have to have a budget. Right. So, so that week on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of that week after Sine Die had wrapped up, there was a select sort of group of senators and delegates appointed to meet basically twice every day and talk through options for how can we make a fiscal plan that's going to pass the House and Senate, be okay with the governor, and get us out of our mess. And this was everything. It was transportation. It was education aid. It was a lot of funding for local governments. It was tax changes. It was a long list of different things and lots of moving parts. And situations that are that complicated call for leadership. Strong leadership. Yeah. And so I would just say that was for me in my career the first time I mentally sort of tore up all the textbooks that I had read in political science classes and learning about, you know, this is government budgeting and this is the way that legislative bodies work. And then you read the Constitution, it tells you the process is step one, step two, and step three. Well, the words I heard in the deliberations in the House of Delegates were shorter words. A little bit different. Yeah. (laughs) And they were a little more direct. Yes. So, uh, and not quite as constitutionally sounding and and more personal, Uh, but um, the way things get done became much clearer to me. Clay Mitchell was the first person who sort of shone that light in my eyes and said, this is how we do stuff around here. Now, he wasn't doing it for my benefit, but he was banging the table and rallying the votes in the House and coordinating what they needed to get from the Senate and understanding what they needed to get to get to work with the governor. There were lots of people, lots of moving parts. Clay Mitchell brought the whole thing together. I think he saved the AAA bond rating for the state of Maryland that year. 
So obviously you were very lucky to have a front seat there and obviously have a, a <laughs> lot of respect for the late Clay Mitchell. Obviously his services will be on Friday. It'll be a, a big event, I'm sure. It'll be a it'll be a, a big political event and in in a way his passing marks it's kind of the end of an era because that type of politician doesn't get to stand on that kind of island too frequently. So I don't know. A lot, there'll be there'll be a long line of well wishers and a lot of people who will be remembering those days fondly. Um, I'm not going to be able to be there myself, but I will be among those people uh, thinking of him and his family. Very well put. And so, Michael, another thing that we're looking forward to. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Kerwin Commission and this new funding work group that has convened now for the first time. We'll dig into that, I think, next week, but obviously a lot more to talk about. They've now met and uh, we'll see the direction that they're heading and we'll fill you in next week. Yep. All right. So that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends, give us a review, a rating. It really helps get our message out. But for now, for Michael, this is Kevin signing off and we will talk to you soon.